Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Hi, everyone. Before we start today's episode, Brittany and I just want to clarify that at the time of recording, we use the terminology biological female and biological male. But since recording, we've learned that it's really just best to say the terminology people assigned female at birth and people assigned male at birth. When we refer to biological female and biological male throughout the episode, we are actually referring to people assigned female at birth and people assigned male at birth. Now we will go ahead and let the original episode play from the beginning. Hello, hello. We're here. Brittany. Amy. Brittany. Amy. We are going to talk today a continuation of the sex and gender bias in medicine. Woohoo! Which some of us have experienced, well, many of us have experienced. Probably most of us. (laughs) The majority, like 99.9, going on 101% of us have experienced when seeking medical treatment, especially for endometriosis. Who doesn't love a good trip to the doctor while your pain is being dismissed is all in your head? Is that a sarcastic question? Oh, yes, that, highly, highly. Is that rhetorical? I mean, or? I'm sure you've heard that, so um, I'm sorry that I had to bring it up again, but doesn't everybody love that? This episode is part four of our series, and hopefully the final episode, but it couldn't turn into two. Depends how much we talk today. So this is final or maybe not so final episode. Only you will know. Only we. Next week. (laughs) Only we will know at the end of this episode (laughs) what happens. (laughs) But we need to jump right in. So if you didn't hear part one and two, we highly recommend that you go back and listen to those because they're in a chronological order. In the first episode, we give a rundown of the sex and gender bias and what it is some background information on it, and of course, how experiencing this bias in our treatment can make us feel, hint, like crap. And we also mentioned the book, Doing Harm, the truth about how bad medicine and lazy science leave women dismissed, misdiagnosed, and sick by Maya Dussenberry. And we talked about how the sex and gender bias has led to what Maya calls a knowledge gap. Brittany pop quiz. I'm ready. What is the knowledge gap? Is it when science knows less about biological female bodies versus biological male bodies? Ding, 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 ding. (gasps) Oh, I finally got it right. Yes, Brittany. My knowledge gap is closed. And we explained all about that. And Maya in her book also talks about the trust gap. What is the trust gap, Brittany? Is it the amount of trust the doctor has in me as a woman-presenting person about my ability to be reliable when I talk about the symptoms I'm experiencing? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm not happy I was right. You're not reliable. (laughs) 
As we mentioned in the first episode, the gender and sex bias can affect all sexes, but we are going to focus specifically on how it affects the female sex. We're going to try to use inclusive language throughout these episodes, but in some cases we may refer to men and women, not to be uninclusive, but to mirror the language of the studies or of the historical information, especially when they refer more to the cultural aspects related to gender, because cis men and cis women are primarily the populations that have been studied in the sex and gender bias. While this series will focus on how the sex and gender bias in medicine affects cis women and people perceived as women by society, it's important to point out that the sex and gender bias affects all people. It's especially important to point out that people of other genders and gender identities such as non-binary and trans are additionally marginalized and may experience similar or increased bias and discrimination. Depending on what other identities we hold, those intersections can further compound the biases that we face, having detrimental consequences on our health care. We want to talk about medically unexplained symptoms. In the second part of the series, we gave a quick, or not so quick, hour-long rundown, but considering it's a history over like centuries and millennia, I'm pretty sure now it was just quick compared to like all of 4,000 years. So <laughs> we gave a quick rundown of the history of hysteria, which has heavily contributed to the stereotypes that remain in place today about women. Lucky us. Thank you, culture for letting those stereotypes stay strong. That was full sarcasm. Just kidding. In case you didn't get it. <laughs> Nowadays, people whose symptoms cannot be attributed to a recognized illness, and when I say people, I mean especially women, if their symptoms cannot be attributed to a recognized illness, like if you present with symptoms and I'm like, hmm, we don't really know what that is, then that goes into the category of being Medically unexplained. Oh, wow. How fun <laughs> and interesting and horrible. So basically, I feel like they've put a fancy spin on the idea of hysteria, right? It's like, ooh, we don't know what's wrong with you. You're just a medical mystery. It's medically unexplained. Wow, it's so great to be called an anomaly. My favorite compliment. I kind of want to just roll my eyes at that a little bit because, yes, I'm sure there are many symptoms that are medically unexplained, like truly medicine cannot explain these symptoms because they just the illness isn't known about yet or like we haven't made that progress in medicine because medicine is just it's obviously still progressing. It's still evolving. It's still it's a practice like we're still learning, even though some people act like medicine is this like the most advanced science in the world. And it is very advanced, but it's not like the end-all be-all, right? It's so, not concrete. It changes and grows and evolves. Oh, yeah. And that's why they don't put leeches on my vagina anymore for endometriosis. Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> that you know of. <laughs> but whenever I hear medically unexplained symptoms, I have to think about many of our journeys with endometriosis because sometimes medically unexplained symptoms indeed have an explanation. But the problem is that the doctor that we're seeing is not familiar with the illness, and therefore that specific doctor is not able to diagnose us because they're not able to see that the symptoms that we're presenting with are actually formed together to be the symptoms of a certain illness. 
right? So for me, for the first couple of years that my endometriosis symptoms appeared and I went to all these doctors, they were medically unexplained. No one knew what they were from. So mysterious. Ooh, the anomaly. Ooh. And then, like three years later, they were no longer medically unexplained. Suddenly, they were explained by a quote-unquote diagnosis of, it's psychosomatic, on your head, it's anxiety. And then, like five years later, that diagnosis morphed into, it's IBS, it's all IBS, which is influenced by stress. So it's your stress influencing your IBS. I stress too much. I <laughs> poop the, too much. <laughs> is the S in IBS stress? stress? Yes, actually. It's irritable <laughs> bowel stress syndrome. You didn't know that? And then finally, 16 years after this whole debacle began with the symptoms, and they're medically unexplained, and no, they're explained by anxiety, and no, they're explained by IB stress. <laughs> IBS. Yeah, see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Then we got the real name put to all of my symptoms, which was the beautiful, resounding name of endometriosis. Oh, beautiful? Really? (laughs) It is a nice name. Yeah, but it's not nice to have it. (laughs) No, but the name is beautiful. Relatively. I guess better than IB stress, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think what's really funny through your experience is that my experience and so many Everybody else's. in this community <laughs> and in many other illnesses that are predominant in the biological female. So our collective experience, Ooh. if you will. <laughs> I think what's funny about the collective experience is that your unexplainable symptoms. Medically unexplained. Yeah, medically. Excuse you. Science. Oh, I'm The sorry. most advanced science. The medically unexplainable symptoms the science, that you're The medicine that no longer puts leeches on my vagina. That's how advanced medicine is nowadays. Okay. So They've foregone the smelly creams on the vagina from the Roman goodness. times. The leeches from the Victorian times. Now we're just... Doing nothing and it's medically unexplained? Is that that where we've gone? (laughs) They've moved on to x-rays and CAT scans and ultrasounds. And still mysteries. (laughs) Still mysteries. Well, see, here's the thing is that your symptoms weren't mysteries. They weren't medically unexplainable symptoms. They were just not able to be explained by your doctor. Exactly, because it's not like they only started diagnosing endometriosis with you two years ago when I got (laughs) diagnosed, right? Like they've been diagnosing endometriosis since, I don't know. Couple hundred, a long time. hundred years at least. That's when Samson came out with his theory a hundred years ago. So at least a hundred years, they've been diagnosing endometriosis. So some people were able to get their endometriosis diagnosed, and some people were were told they were a mystery. We're told they were medically unexplainable. So it's kind of interesting that medically unexplainable is relative to the doctor that you're talking to. <laughs> Scary. I can also think of another way that this is really frustrating is particularly in terms of symptoms, how many symptoms or presentations of illnesses have been studied mostly in people who are biologically male. So, for instance, you could be having a symptom of a heart attack that doesn't present itself when somebody who's a biological male has a heart attack. And you could be dismissed for that symptom, saying that's not a symptom of a heart attack when it is but it's not studied enough in biological females for it to be listed as a common symptom. So this can be really frustrating in terms of finding treatment for an illness you're experiencing when the symptoms that you have as a biological female are not listed as common. Ooh, when your symptoms don't match the standard, quote-unquote, symptoms, Mm -hmm. or 
when they do match the standard quote-unquote symptoms like for endometriosis, but the doctor is not knowledgeable in that disease, so they're not able to diagnose you in that disease. So really, what I'm hearing is that I think so many medically unexplained diseases are probably explainable. Depending who you talk to. <laughs> yeah, depending on how it's many studies have been done and who you talk to. the internet was able to diagnose my medically unexplainable illness way before my doctor Well, was. the internet knows all. Didn't you know that? <laughs> <laughs> the internet is the collective consciousness of all, and it knows everything. And it's going to take over the world someday. <laughs> Somehow typing in all of my 12 symptoms of endometriosis was able to pull up an accurate Thank description you, of endometriosis Thank you. before the doctor was. Hmm. For 16 years. <laughs> If only Dr. WebMD had existed 16 years ago, this may be easier. If only back in 2002, the internet had been so powerful and prevalent as it was today. Oh, shucks. So we bring this up because oftentimes these quote-unquote medically unexplained symptoms today, they seem to open the door for the idea, especially if you are a woman, that your symptoms are... Hold on, let me... Let me listen back to the memories of so many of my doctors. All in your head. Anxiety. Psychosomatic. (laughs) This sounds too familiar. (laughs) I mean, after all, if there's no quote-unquote explanation for your symptoms, then they must be. Must. In your head. Must, must, must be in your head. They must be. After all, the reason's not being seen on the ultrasound, on the I CT can't scan, understand on the blood what test. that is, so it must be in your head. Wow, what a way to displace blame when you don't have enough understanding about something. Way to go. And yes, things like stress and anxiety and repressed emotions can play a role in the health of the body. But we all have these. Right. So if we go down that path and we start looking for our sources of stress or how much anxiety we have or what kind of repressed emotions we might have from childhood, most likely we're going to find something like we've all had experiences that we could say are causing us stress right now or stress in the past or that have given us anxiety or that were painful from childhood. And sometimes our stress or anxiety can make us sick. Like Brittany, the other day, she had a twitch in her eye for like three days. Yeah, right. not great. It was related to stress. Sometimes Amy has uncontrollable diarrhea when she gets nervous. That's real. Nervous poos are totally valid. Yeah, and that's related to stress. So, like, I fully acknowledge that our stress and our anxiety and our repressed emotions, like, all those things can play a part in our health. But many times disease presentations in people are being brushed off as stress or anxiety or repressed emotions or psychosomatic or psychogenic when there's really a physical cause. Endometriosis is not caused by stress. Interstitial cystitis is not caused by anxiety. Having constipation because your gut bacteria is all messed up, that's not in your head. All of those things have real biological causes. While stress or anxiety may be exacerbating these symptoms, oftentimes they're not the root cause. So if the doctor goes knocking on that door, ooh, I think it's psychosomatic. Have you been under stress lately? Well, yeah. Haven't we all been under stress lately in this modern lifestyle? Also, I'm under stress because I'm writhing in pain. (laughs) Yeah, don't allow something like psychosomatic to dismiss the real biological problem that is manifesting in your body. 
And it makes me think again of that study we mentioned earlier by Anka Samulowitz, Ida Gremier, Eric Erickson, and Gunnel Hensing, done in 2018. The study is The Brave Men and Emotional Women, a theory-guided literature review on gender bias in healthcare and gendered norms toward patients with chronic pain. So this review used 77 articles, and these 77 articles were picked based on criteria, so they weren't just randomly picked. If you want to know what the criteria is, definitely go read the study, but just know that they were picked specifically based with criteria. And these 77 articles that they selected through this criteria were published about treatment and patients with various pain conditions. These 77 articles were published in 39 journals, over six countries, across 15 years, so a very wide, varied range of information. And these studies were all designed differently with different kinds of research. So this review found that the more distress a woman had about her symptoms, the more it appeared to the doctor that they were psychosomatic. If that doesn't get you like, then I don't know what will. To put this in another way, I just want to understand this. So if I'm upset because I don't feel good, you know, maybe because, I don't know, I have things like chronic pain, nausea, leg pain, stabbing, vagina pain, fatigue, frequent urination, constipation, just to name a few endo symptoms that, you know, I just thought off the top of my head. <laughs> oh, my God. All the ones that I'm just currently suffering right now in right this, in this moment? very moment. Yeah. yeah. If you just have, you know, offhand, just a couple of those symptoms, they're upsetting. So that's a sign because you're upset about how upsetting they are. That means that it's more in your head somehow. Oh, hmm. I see. Because they're so bad and you're distressed by how bad they are, that must mean they're not so bad and must be more in your head. Interesting concept. Oh, I see. So you're not supposed to be upset about symptoms that are ruining your life. Correct. Or your quality of life. Or your ability to work. Or your fertility. Or your relationships with your loved ones. Or like any aspect of your life. Don't be upset about it. Don't be distressed. Mm -mm. If you're distressed, that's an indicator that these symptoms are psychosomatic in nature. Interesting how the doctor gets that conclusion. Just to be clear, again, the study found that the more distress a woman had about her symptoms, the more it appeared to the doctor that they were psychosomatic. So what you're saying, Brittany, is that in order to be taken seriously at the doctor, I shouldn't show any emotion or I shouldn't show myself to be distressed. So either I should be naming all my symptoms in a really smiling voice, but then they probably think I'm a little bit neurotic. So maybe I should do like a flat, like neutral tone, like a like a robotic voice. Mm. Ooh, what would that sound like? Okay, so I'll try it again as a robot. <laughs> so picture this. I enter to the doctor's office. Like the Tin Man. <laughs> I'm a little rusty. I need some oil. Hello. I have chronic pain, nausea, leg pain, stabbing, vagina pain, fatigue, frequent urination, constipation, but I am not distressed by these in any way. <laughs> I am reporting neutrally and factually these non-distressing symptoms. See, I am calm and smiling. 
<laughs> produces, was that better? Produces large smile on face. Creaky smile because I didn't oil my <laughs> smile enough this morning. With broccoli in her teeth. <laughs> I am so non-distressed. I do not care that I have food in my teeth. I feel nothing. No fear. No aggravation. This must mean they are real. <laughs> they be like, um, I think you're numb, ma'am. I, that might be a symptom of depression. I think this is definitely oh, so psychosomatic in nature. <laughs> Gosh. You can't win. You're either you have to too be emotional, like, not emotional a, enough. You have to be like a little more upbeat, but with a little bit of rhythm. Maybe you, so you mean I have to go to acting classes first <laughs> to like get it right, get the affect right? Like that's a lot of work just to tell the doctor what's wrong with me. He should sing it. Hello, I have chronic pain. <laughs> Smile, nausea, and leg pain. Stabbing vagina pain. Now it's like an operatic. What if I get some voice lessons <laughs> When I read that, so many of my medical experiences began to make sense to me. I remember one time when I was 19 years old and I was in college and I was missing my morning classes to be at my colonoscopy appointment at 6.30 in the morning. That sounds fun. It was not fun. And it was my second colonoscopy. And by the way, I spent all night pooing in a bathroom that had eight stalls for 45 women on my dorm floor. That sounds like an actual nightmare. It was. It was really fun. And there was a mild hurricane that day. So, Oh, wow. So they were shaking at the same time? (laughs) It all was shaking around you as you were shaking on the toilet? And the doctor showed up 35 minutes late. Oh, how courteous. (laughs) I was at my second colonoscopy. I was scared. I was alone. So I was with the gastrointestinal, so the GI doctor that had just performed my second colonoscopy, and he shared the news with me that there was nothing wrong, that they found nothing wrong. And yeah, surprise. And I started crying uncontrollably. I mean, first of all, I've been up pooping all night. I woke up at 6.30, not that I slept hardly anything since I was up pooping all night. I had anesthesia. I mean, I was overwhelmed. And I was in a tough situation by myself, sick in college, and it was very upsetting. I asked him through my sobs, what is it? If, if you can't find anything, then what's wrong with me? I remember he just started attacking me, and he said, why are you crying? You should be happy. You know that I've seen colon cancer in young people, don't you? You know that I've seen ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, and I diagnose those diseases every single day, and you don't have any of that. You should be overjoyed that your colonoscopy came back negative. You know, I really recommend that you see a psychiatrist. That's sickening. And of course, I started crying harder, right? So in his eyes, I probably became like more hysterical. And there I was. Just another hysterical woman. What you just read rings true. The more distress you show about your symptoms, the more psychosomatic they are. Yeah, I was distressed. But I wasn't crying because I wanted to have any of those conditions that are very challenging to live with. I was crying because I 100% knew that something was wrong with me, and yet no one had been able to figure it out and had already been two years, and my life was falling to pieces around me. So excuse me for feeling a little bit overwhelmed and crying in your office. Unforgivable. Unforgivable. What was I thinking? You could have put your hand on my shoulder. You could have said, oh, 
I know that's really hard right now, but you'll figure it out. A moment of compassion, really? Yeah, that's, or that's even possible? if you thought that it was psychosomatic and that I needed to see a psychiatrist, you could have said it with more empathy, not just like barking at me, like barking at a crying 19-year-old who just had a camera up her butt. Compassion left the realm, apparently. Not even found on Earth. Nowhere. 404 error does not exist. So to that gastrointestinal doctor, who I'm sure is definitely not listening to this podcast, I have a message <laughs> for you. Endometriosis was found for my intestines and my rectum. Thank you. And that turned out to be highly contributing to my diarrhea. It was not medically unexplained. It just couldn't be explained by you. <gasps> Thank Shock. you and have a nice day. That actually reminds me of something that Maya Dussenberry said in her book, Doing Harm. That was a red flag, quote unquote, for patients that might have some kind of psychosomatic disorder is repeatedly going to find adequate medical care, going from doctor to doctor or doctor shopping, because all of the doctors have told you there's nothing wrong with you. So when you continue going doctor to doctor, doctor shopping, even though you've been continuously told over and over that there's nothing wrong with you, the medical literature pegs that as a sign that the patient's symptoms may be psychosomatic. There you go, being distressed about your health when medicine says there's nothing wrong with you. Oh, how dare we seek a second opinion. We must have a psychosomatic illness in that case. Because we don't believe the first thing we hear? Oh, imagine. I think the frustrating thing is that doing something like that is seen as a red flag because somehow we're supposed to immediately believe what the first doctor we ever see says. I'm sorry, I thought going to get a second opinion was called advocating for myself or educating myself or informing myself. No, didn't you know that actually when you go to a doctor, whatever they say, you're supposed to immediately believe? Did you miss that instruction lesson? Mm, I must have. That's why endometriosis <laughs> was seen as in my head all of those years. Yeah. I think this is unfair to both patients and doctors because it puts a lot of undue burden on a doctor to know everything there is about every illness in existence. That's not fair to them. That's why there's specializations, because you cannot possibly know everything for every single illness that exists. That's a lot of undue burden on them. Well, and think about it. When I was at the GI doctor and getting the colonoscopy, because the symptoms I was having for endometriosis at the time were digestive, and they just couldn't find anything wrong with my digestive system, I was in the wrong specialty. So that it's wasn't like his fault. A big problem in Western medicine is that the body is not seen holistically. It's split up into these different branches. And so really, I had to be seen by a gynecological team. But I wasn't going to see the gynecological team. I was going to see the GI specialist. So well, I was already starting in the wrong spot. What if I had never gone to get a second opinion or a third opinion or a fourth opinion? Or a 67th opinion. Or a fifth opinion. <laughs> <laughs> it's the frustration of your symptoms being seen as in your head by a doctor who can't possibly know everything, but also isn't directing you to helpful care, telling you to go see a psychiatrist instead of another specialty is not helpful either. Well, and it just doesn't make sense. Like you said, the doctor doesn't know everything. Doctors can make mistakes. Doctors can have misinformation. Doctors can read scans wrong. Doctors have different skill levels. That's what we talk about all the time here with endometriosis. 
a gynecologist is not the same as an endospecialist, for example. So they even have different subspecialties within their field. They have different educations. They have different biases. If I hadn't gotten my 14th opinion, which I guess at that point, after I'd gone to see 14 different doctors for the same symptoms, I was certifiably with a psychosomatic illness at that point, because I wasn't just going to get a second opinion. I got a third and a fourth. And I, I guess with every second opinion, third opinion, extra opinion that you get, it just keeps cementing home. It's that red flag, the idea that it's all in your head. So I guess by my 14th doctor, it was like really, truly It was in your head, head times 14. Yeah, it was like so mega in my head at that point. But guess what? That was when I finally got diagnosed with endometriosis. 14 doctors, 16 years later, because I kept advocating for myself. So it's funny how to the patients, we're advocating for ourselves. But to many doctors or to this overarching medical stereotype, we're just enacting behavior that would typically be seen in a patient who has nothing wrong with them, who has everything in their head. Mm, I don't get it. I wish all doctors were just like doctors on TV, like on House or on Grey's Anatomy, where the patient comes in and they're like, doctor, there's something wrong with me. And they just keep searching and searching. I used to love watching House because they had a team of doctors with different specialties come together and they would use this whiteboard and they would put all the symptoms up there and they'd be in their textbooks and they'd be searching these disease presentations. And then they would even go to the patient's house to see if something in the environment like mold or food or whatever, like they would become like true investigators. Stop at nothing. And they would figure out what was wrong with the patient. And I think for so many of us, it's like we go to the doctor and they're like, oh, let me do an ultrasound. Oh, that showed nothing. Let me do a blood test. Oh, that showed nothing. Oh, you're medically unexplained in your head. The dismissal is so common. But then at the same time, like, I don't feel like that gastrointestinal doctor left no stone unturned. He did a couple of allergy tests. He did a colonoscopy. And he had a poop sample. And then suddenly, I was 100% healthy. And there was nothing wrong with me. And it was all in my head. It's like, there's a lot going on in the pelvic area, right? Like, maybe I need to see a gynecologist, a urologist, a naturopath, a functional medicine doctor, a pelvic floor therapist. Hello? Hello? Options? Any recommendations that are? It's in your head, please. One thing that's always been really frustrating and upsetting to me is how a misdiagnosis of anxiety or depression is sometimes given to a patient instead of searching for a real answer for what's biologically wrong with someone. While anxiety and depression are valid and real illnesses, Brittany has generalized anxiety disorder. Yes, I do. Throwing that out there. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) A lot of it and suffered with chronic depression. Those are real and valid issues, real and valid diagnoses. But they shouldn't be given as a blanket to dismiss something that that may be a different illness, like endometriosis or IBS or chronic fatigue syndrome. None of those things should just be called anxiety and depression in order to avoid looking for what's really wrong with us. In the book Doing Harm, Maya brings up a really great point that it's estimated around four out of five prescriptions for antidepressants are written by physicians who aren't psychiatrists. So as somebody who actually has a degree in psychology, 
I've often wondered why people who aren't in the mental health field, that's not their specialty, are able to diagnose an illness that has to do with mental health. So while they can, my question has always been, should they? While all doctors receive general education in various illnesses in medical school, specialties exist for a reason. When a psychiatrist diagnoses a person with anxiety or depression, there are psychological evaluations that have to be done, assessments that are made, comparisons and symptoms, and a deeper understanding of how those symptoms present, as it's what they primarily study. But if that's not what you work in, what assessments are you doing when you diagnose me with anxiety as a cardiologist? What symptom comparisons are you doing? Are you using the DSM to look up my symptoms? Just because you can, should you be diagnosing me with that? I know that many use their gynecologist and their like annual wellness exam in lieu of going to see, for example, their primary care physician. So it makes sense that, you know, your gynecologist could pick up on the fact that you are exhibiting symptoms of anxiety or depression, and they could be able to refer you to a specialist in that area or speak further with you on this. What Brittany and I are really speaking about now is when the diagnosis is just such an obvious blanket dismissal of symptoms. Like, I remember a gynecologist diagnosed me with anxiety. And it literally went like this. Doctor, I'm having really bad pelvic pain. Can you do an ultrasound? The doctor does an ultrasound. It shows nothing. Quote, unquote, nothing. Who knows if it showed something and they didn't know how to read the scan or they missed it or but to them. They saw nothing. The interpretation was that there was nothing. This was when I was like 20 years old. The doctor said to me, your ultrasound is negative. I think your pelvic pain is from anxiety. He wrote me a prescription for antidepressants, gave it to me, and said, bye-bye. You can't see me right now, but I'm shrugging. Like, I have my hands thrown up in the air. <laughs> the because biggest shrug like, I've ever seen. Seriously? What? You didn't do any kind of mental health assessment. If you thought that I had anxiety, you didn't ask me any questions about it. You didn't probe further. You didn't give me a recommendation to a referral to see a specialist for anxiety. It was just... There's nothing on the ultrasound. Your pelvic pain is probably due to anxiety. Here's some antidepressants. What is that? What is that? I was 20 years old. I wasn't aware that that probably was not a valid diagnosis of anxiety. I also think what he did was concerning and potentially damaging because psychopharmacology, which is when you give medication for mental health, is about checking in and balancing your medication. So when you work with a psychiatrist, you try a medication and they ask how it's making you feel, what your symptoms, what you're experiencing, so that they can adjust your medication. Up the dosage, down the dosage, try a different chemical blend. Yeah, because these medicines are affecting the chemicals and the biochemistry in your brain. Exactly. There was a great statistic in the book Doing Harm, and she said, quote, Studies in the 90s suggested that as many as 30 to 50 percent of women diagnosed with depression were misdiagnosed, end quote. 30 to 50 percent. That's a high percentage. So that doctor made me so furious. I didn't actually go fill the prescription for anxiety because I didn't feel that that was the root cause of my pelvic pain. And also 
my diarrhea that only began when I had my period. And then as soon as I stopped bleeding, it went away. And so did the fever. So there were all these, you know, symptoms that just like didn't line up with what the doctor was saying was the cause. But what if I really did have anxiety? But I also had endometriosis. Using a diagnosis of anxiety, which may or may not have actually been a correct diagnosis for me, I don't think the doctor would have known that at the time because he didn't do any kind of mental health assessment or psychological evaluation to probe further into the issue. But let's say that I really did have anxiety at the time. That doesn't take away the fact that I still had endometriosis, a disease that wasn't being recognized or treated. So it's just, in many ways, some of the mental health diagnoses that women are receiving, they're just a way to brush off the physical symptoms that the person is experiencing. So even if I did have anxiety and I started to take the anxiety medication and maybe I felt better with my anxiety, that wouldn't have helped my pelvic pain. I would have still need to seek help for my pelvic pain. Before we move on to further discussion on this topic, we want to be clear that if the gynecologist or another doctor gave you a diagnosis of anxiety or depression, that doesn't mean it's incorrect. We're just speaking generally right now about situations that could happen. And if you feel that you were incorrectly diagnosed with a mental health condition, you need to speak directly to your doctor about those concerns. You can ask them why they gave you this diagnosis, what assessments they used to reach this diagnosis, or you can get a second opinion, especially one from a licensed mental health professional. It's important to get treatment if we do have a mental health condition. And of course, we should never stop taking our medication without speaking to our doctor first. With that very important information in mind, let's keep going in our discussion about the topic. This is a good time to mention. This next fact from the study Brave Men and Emotional Women, a theory-guided literature review on gender bias in healthcare and gendered norms towards patients with chronic pain. So when they were doing the study for gender bias and related to chronic pain, they reviewed a number of studies on pain medication in comparison with men versus women. So the results of these studies showed that, quote, women compared to men received less and less effective pain relief, less pain medication with opioids, and more antidepressants, and got more mental health referrals, end quote. More antidepressants and more mental health referrals in women than in men. hmm Well, I believe it. And I've lived it. I think another interesting fact from the research of the study Brave Men and Emotional Women was that The studies that they reviewed showed that, quote, medically unexplained conditions often go along with an unwillingness among professionals to believe in the women's pain, end quote. And then one of the studies that they reviewed was in Canada about fibromyalgia. And these specialists and practitioners in the study, quote, regarded fibromyalgia patients as malingerers time-consuming, and frustrating. Some clinicians even held the patients accountable for their pain. End quote. Okay, first of all, as someone who has fibromyalgia, I just find that disgusting because living with full-body pain and the fatigue and the frustration and 
you know, the sadness that comes from being in chronic pain all the time. And then additionally, just like not being believed by your doctors and by society and by work and by your friends. And, oh, you're in pain again. And what's that joke on the Internet? It's like, who's a person with fibromyalgia? Anyone who can say ouch 11 times in the designated spots. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It just makes me feel infuriated. And on the other hand, I don't think that this you know, skepticism that the doctors have, like, I don't think that's coming with ill intent. I don't think a lot of doctors are even aware that they have a subconscious bias towards women and especially towards women in pain and especially a mistrust of women being reliable reporters of their symptoms. I do think that the majority of doctors become doctors because they want to do good. They want to help and they want to heal and they want to improve people's lives. And they probably think that they're treating everyone as fair and equal. And there have been studies done on the implicit racial bias, and many doctors report that they feel that they give equal treatment, even though they don't. You know, I think doctors might think, oh, well, yeah, maybe that doctor, like that doctor over there has a racial bias or like a bias against women, but not me. No, not me. Like, I treat everyone fair and equal. And to be clear, like, Brittany and I are not talking here about any specific doctor. We're just saying that the sex and gender bias is a systemic problem in our health care system. And whether the bias is explicit or implicit, so whether the bias is conscious or unconscious, by doctors having these biases against women, it is harming our health. If a doctor has unconscious bias, they might unintentionally make different treatment decisions than they would make if they were treating a man. And I mean, we stated this earlier, right? Like the study of brave men and emotional women demonstrated that women are more likely to be referred to a mental health professional or to be given a prescription for antidepressants when compared to men. So we are seeing that men and women are being treated differently. The stereotypes towards men and women are different. And therefore, men and women are being treated differently in the healthcare system. I want to tell a quick story from Grey's Anatomy. Oh, her favorite. (laughs) I love Grey's Anatomy, affectionately known as GA among loved fans. Oh, wow. There's insider (laughs) language, too. I feel so excluded. Okay, no, but this is very relevant to what we're talking about. Because I want to tell these stories because sometimes when if it's just like Brittany and I talking, like stories can really help drive a point home. Yeah. And like for me, they help me conceptualize what we're talking about. And I think that in this episode of Grey's Anatomy, they actually did a phenomenal job. I don't know what episode it was because there's so many now. If you watch Grey's Anatomy or if you don't, there is Dr. Bailey, and she is a woman. She is black, and she has obsessive compulsive disorder, which is all relevant. That's why I'm saying that. And she's the chief of surgery at this prominent hospital. And she's this incredibly smart, powerful black woman. And she's beautiful and so kind. And she ends up adopting a boy later. Anyways. Whoa, that seems like it's tangential. (laughs) It is. She's just a wonderful person. And so she was having a heart attack. And she didn't want the staff at her hospital to know because she's a chief of surgery. So she went to a neighboring hospital and she told them, I'm having a heart attack because she recognizes symptoms. 
And they didn't believe her. And they were like, oh, it must be stress. And then when they saw, like when they brought in her chart and like asked her questions and she had said that she had obsessive compulsive disorder, they became so focused on her mental health as, you know, perhaps the reason why she came in like, hmm, maybe it has to do with her OCD. Like maybe it's psychosomatic. I don't know. And they brought down a psych consult for her. And she was like, I don't need a psychiatrist right now. I need a cardiologist because I'm having a heart attack. And I really like that episode because in the episode, through the situation and then through like conversations that she had with another black doctor who is a very prominent cardiologist, and I believe she's the chief of her department of cardiology. And they begin to talk about, you know, how difficult it is to get care when you're a woman, when you're a black woman, when you're a person who has a mental health diagnosis. And it was just such a powerful episode. I really recommend it because they they just did a really good job highlighting the different biases that there can be from doctors towards the patient and medicine and how that can affect care. It took Dr. Bailey ages to get anyone to take her seriously about her heart attack. And that happens every single day off of TV. I mean, that show was inspired by real true facts that happen commonly to women, to black women, to black people, to people with mental health conditions. And it's sickening. And it needs to stop. The racial bias and gender bias aside, we wanted to bring up this story because when you have a diagnosis of mental health on your record, whether correct or misdiagnosis, it can lead to a change in how your care proceeds going forward. If it's a correct diagnosis, then a doctor can use that to dismiss any other symptoms that come up. If it's a misdiagnosis, they can do the same, but you're also not even receiving care for a proper diagnosis at all. So it can be so damaging to use something like anxiety or depression or other mental health disorders to dismiss proper diagnoses because then you don't end up getting any adequate treatment at all. I think in general, it is just so psychologically damaging to have our physical symptoms dismissed. Before our endometriosis diagnosis, many of us came to believe that we couldn't trust what we felt. We start to dismiss ourselves as hypochondriacs or quote unquote crazy and think that maybe it is all in our heads and think that maybe it is all psychosomatic. And that can lead to self blame. That can lead to us thinking, oh, it's all my fault that I have endometriosis when it's not our fault that we have endometriosis not in any way. There's nothing that we did or didn't do that led to us having endometriosis. It just happened. We were most likely born with it. And it is so damaging to be told that it's psychosomatic or that it's psychogenic and that it's all in our heads as if it's something that we've done or a way of thinking that we have. Being dismissed can lead us to stop advocating for ourselves. It can lead us to stop going to the doctor because we have a fear of going to see the doctor and being dismissed or being brushed off or being laughed at or being insulted and told that we just have a low pain tolerance or we just need to toughen up or we're not strong enough. When I was finally diagnosed with endometriosis, I will tell you that my self-esteem 
my self-confidence, my trust in myself and my trust in what I was feeling, it absolutely soared. And people noticed after my surgery, coworkers and friends commented on how I held myself differently, how I held myself taller, how I spoke in a louder voice than I had been speaking. Because for almost a year until my surgery, I had been practically whispering because I just, I was in so much pain and I was just also feeling so defeated and so tired. So many of us have felt so validated and relieved to get our diagnosis. And I think part of the journey of trying to heal with endometriosis for me has been trying to heal these past hurts that I have towards the doctors who dismissed me and heal the wound of the self-trust that I at one point had in myself but then got so broken when I stopped trusting in myself and I started trusting in what all the doctors were saying about me, which was that none of it was real. I remember how validated you felt when you finally got your diagnosis. That validation helped. It didn't undo, but it helped to heal so much of the dismissal and validation you had experienced over the last 16 years. I find it really frustrating and overwhelming and sickening how the medical system, through the sex and gender bias, perpetuates this dismissal and invalidation of people's symptoms and experiences. Learning all of this is just so heavy. And while I already know it exists and I've already lived it, like so many of us have, just hearing it and hearing it in the terms of scientific proof with studies just makes the gravitas of it so much bigger and so much heavier. Now that we know this and we know that this is serious and real and is backed up by science, what can we do about it? Well, I think one of the first things that we can do is understand the reality of what we're up against. I think we can understand that we're probably going to be judged when we go to the doctor based on what we're wearing, if we look healthy or we look sick, our skin color, our gender. And I think knowing that the implicit bias exists, we shouldn't let what the doctor tells us about, you know, is it stress or are you feeling depressed? Or we shouldn't let these stereotypes or these biases shake our faith in ourselves. We should have trust in ourselves. If we really think that something is wrong and we don't think that these symptoms are being caused by stress and they might be medically unexplainable, but we really think that there's something wrong with our body, then we should trust that. We should not let it shake the trust in ourselves, and we should continue to advocate for ourselves. And if the doctor dismisses our symptoms or doesn't want to run tests or give us pain medication, I think maybe we can pull out the ace from up our sleeve and we can say, can I please get it in writing that you refused to treat my symptoms? And using that powerful phrase, can I get it in writing in my file that you refuse to treat my symptoms? It's kind of like a reality check for the doctor. Like, oh, the patient thinks I'm refusing to treat her symptoms. And I didn't realize that I came off as refusing to treat her symptoms. So let me pause and take a step back and go over the symptoms again with the patient. Like, I would hope that would be the reaction of the doctor. You know, and of course, if we request this from the doctor, we don't have to be rude about it. We don't have to be angry. Like, we can just be calm and professional 
and say, you know, I've brought my symptoms to you here today, but to me it seems like you're refusing to treat my symptoms because you're implying that it's all in my head. So could you please write on my chart that you refused to treat my symptoms? And if all else fails and that doesn't work and that doesn't allow you to get the proper treatment or have your symptoms addressed, then it may be time to see a new doctor. And we know that sometimes, oftentimes, we're trapped because our insurance system in the United States may not allow us to see more of the same kind of specialists. Or we may need a referral, but our doctor won't write one, except to a psychiatrist. There's so many hurdles around the insurance system, our time, our money. It's not a perfect suggestion by any means, and we're aware of all of the difficulties that come with that. But if you can get a new doctor and you think it's a good option for you, then feel empowered to do that. Something else that we can do is we can learn about our disease. And that's what we've been doing with endometriosis. And it can be really hard to learn about a disease that, like before I was diagnosed, I was trying to learn about what my symptoms could be. But because I didn't have a name for my condition, it was really hard to identify what I need to learn because I didn't have a name. So I was like trapped in this weird catch-22. But if we can learn as much as we can about our bodies, about our disease, about the medicine that we're taking, then we're more empowered to advocate for ourselves. We're more empowered to ask the doctor about a treatment option that they didn't offer us. If we go to a doctor, for example, for endometriosis, and they say, okay, I think you need surgery and we're going to do ablation, if you don't know anything about endometriosis, then you don't know that the doctor didn't offer you excision or talk to you about excision, or offer to refer you to a specialist that does excision. While it shouldn't be on us as the patient to pull these facts out of the doctor or to know more than the doctor about the disease that we're living with, I think unfortunately the reality, and especially when it comes to endometriosis, is that self-education is a must. And when we self-educate, we can realize okay, my doctor is not offering me the gold standard. And so knowing more can open more conversations with the doctor. And if the doctor is not able to talk to you about those different treatment options, then that's also a red flag that maybe this doctor is not as knowledgeable as you had hoped. And it, again, is time to see a new doctor. Something else that we can do to combat these implicit biases is to actually give feedback to our medical professionals. This kind of goes hand in hand with the statement that Amy was making earlier about informing a doctor that it seems they're refusing to treat your symptoms. So when you give feedback, it can also help to trigger a different understanding for a person that you're giving it to. It's constructive feedback, not destructive feedback. Oftentimes, for years and years and years and years, we're misdiagnosed by various doctors, but we never go back and tell them, actually, After all these years, I was diagnosed with endometriosis, which I was presenting to you when I sought you for treatment. So they never get feedback on their errors. They never learn. They never know that they didn't know. You don't know what you don't know is kind of the phrase. So they said to you, oh, it's medical unexplainable or it's probably stress. You know, they said that to me so many times. So I just went to find a new doctor. So those doctors never got corrected. After getting diagnosed, I didn't go back to these doctors and say, I'd love to talk about how you missed my diagnosis. 
and how you told me it was stress-related, but really I had this illness and I just wanted to let you know that you gave me a misdiagnosis. And it's not about being cruel or being petty or making them feel ashamed. It's about letting them know that they have holes in their knowledge. And those holes have affected your medical care and your quality of life. And honestly, I don't know if I will go back and let the doctors know that they made a mistake in my diagnosis. But I have been thinking about it. I have been thinking about how could I go maybe to some of the gynecologists who like blatantly, like there's one in my mind who just really blatantly dismissed me and prescribed me the antidepressants after having a quote unquote negative ultrasound. And I would love to let that doctor know that really that doctor didn't know anything about endometriosis and how that affected me and hurt my care and also hurt me psychologically. I think this tip really depends on the situation of care that you're experiencing. For somebody who may have a lifelong doctor who is a general practitioner who's seen them through everything and referred them to somebody to get treated or they had to go to a specialist to get diagnosed with endometriosis, that might be a relationship where there's space to bring the education and knowledge back to your general practitioner. They weren't able to diagnose you or they dismissed you because they weren't aware they had a knowledge gap in the symptoms and in endo. So you had to go elsewhere and you can bring this education back to them. It's not feasible in every situation, but there's definitely some situations where it might be a really great tool and a practice for you and it can feel empowering at the same time. And while it's not our responsibility to educate our doctors on things that they should learn about themselves, it is a perk that doing this can help future people with diagnosis down the road. If I can do anything to help contribute to a faster diagnosis for somebody else with endometriosis, I personally would do that. So think about also the so future implications. I'm going to go look up the doctor that I had when I was <laughs> I'm a drive 19 <laughs> years old, some, you know, 17 years ago. He might be retired, but we're going to go to his house. <laughs> I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to send him a 12-page long letter. <laughs> Here, and I'd like to link you to the website endopedia.info. Please read all the research from Dr. Redwine. (laughs) Thank you and have a nice day. (laughs) Something else that we can do is we can, if we really feel that a doctor has dismissed us or given us poor care, is we can put in a complaint. We can do this on an official or an unofficial way. Like one way is that we can just write an email to the clinic or to the hospital, letting them know that we perceived a bias from this doctor and how it affected our care. It's scary to do that. It's really scary to assert ourselves. And it's scary, especially like I find it very scary to assert that I feel that someone has done wrong to me. But again, I mean, if the doctor is completely unaware of their bias because it's implicit bias, it's an unconscious bias. I mean, they have no idea that they did that. And so personally, If someone brought a criticism, a constructive criticism to me in an educated, professional way, and they pointed out something that I had been ignorant of, I would be grateful for that because we don't know what we don't know. And another way to do that is if you get a, like when you have a surgery, you get a post-surgery survey, or maybe you go to your doctor's appointment and they send you an email survey, a link. Take the survey and write your comments about the care that your doctor gave you. So if all of those things fail and nobody's listening to you, our number one tip we have as a last resort is to bring a man with you to your appointment. (laughs) 
I wish I was joking. (laughs) (laughs) I saw on the John Oliver show, and John Oliver is a comedian who does a late night show, and he's quite funny. And he did a show about the sex and gender bias and also the racial bias in medicine. It was informative, and he did a good job. And then at the end, he had Wanda Sykes come on, and she, if you don't know who she is, look her up. I love her, and she is a black comedian, and she has a really good stand-up special on Netflix, by the way. And so she came on the show at the end, and she, you know, they had finished talking about the sex and gender bias and the racial bias. So Wanda Sykes came on, and she's like, okay, if all else fails, what can you do if the doctor's not taking you seriously? Bring a white male with you. Oh, no. <laughs> no, Wanda. <laughs> She's not wrong, but uh. <laughs> No, it's so, it was really funny. They had a, another comedian friend of theirs who was a white male, and he had recorded all these sayings. So he was like, my uterus is throbbing. My ovaries are hurting me. <laughs> it, you know? And so, so you just play it. Yeah, so you like would, quote unquote, bring him. Because so she was like, bring a white male with you. And some of you may be thinking, where am I going to get a white male? <laughs> so we provided one for you. And then they like showed the clip of this white comedian <sighs> saying these saying phrases, all these phrases like about women, like about his boobs and his ovaries and his, and it was really funny. Just bring him with you. And of course it was comedy and it's a parody, but it's also like exactly everything that we've been talking about, right? It's like all these jokes are made because this is the reality of the situation is that women are not being taken as seriously in the doctor's office as men. Black people are not being taken as seriously in the doctor's office as white people. These are real problems in our healthcare system, in our society. And I'm really happy that now they're starting to be more addressed. Studies and books and information has been out about these biases. Like these biases are not new by any means. But now, The medical community is becoming more aware of them, and I hope that by continuing to talk about the different biases that there are in medicine, it can help open these conversations and help people think about the implicit biases that they have, think about how the attitudes or the stereotypes or cultural ideas that they might have, how all of that can influence the care that that person is receiving. Because in the end, we just, what we all want is equal care. We all want to live our best lives, our healthiest lives, and we have a right to do that. But we're not receiving that right now. So this has been a long four-part ride with us about the sex and gender bias in medicine, and we really hope you enjoyed them. This is something we've both experienced, and we know that likely you have experienced it many times as well. So learning about the history of where this comes from how pervasive it is in our medical field and the treatment that we receive, it's been really validating to know that these experiences aren't isolated cases. This is a systemic issue, and it's just been really fascinating to learn that and learn what to do about it. And it's been so sad. Yes. Yeah, it's been really hard to... Overall heartbreaking. Learn about this and read about it and talk about it, and it's disheartening and it's disgraceful and it is sad. So let's hope that we can keep progressing and keep making changes towards equality for all beings and not just in healthcare, in all aspects of life. Agreed. Well, we thank you so much for listening today. 
We would love if you reached out to us. Let us know, were you ever diagnosed with quote-unquote medically unexplained symptoms? Do you think that your healthcare has been impacted because of an aspect of your identity? We'd love for you to reach out to us. We are on Instagram at in16yearsofendo, and we're on the website in16years.com. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>